Well, as we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to turn with me to Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, for this message entitled, The Joy of Supporting Gospel Ministry. The Joy of Supporting Gospel Ministry. Our text for today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23, and this message will conclude our study of this uh, remarkably instructive letter which Paul wrote to his beloved friends in Philippi. You know, it's been quite a long time since we have uh, talked on the issue of giving from the pulpit here at Hope Bible Church. In fact, the last time I could find was six years ago when Pastor Leek preached a series on stewardship as the church was getting ready to purchase uh, this building. So there are two reasons that we're going to talk about giving today. And if you're a visitor, you might be thinking, oh great, today was the day. (laughs) Well, there are two reasons. First and foremost, it's the next and last passage in our verse-by-verse study of Philippians. And so in that sense, God's providence requires us to talk about biblical principles of supporting gospel ministry. But also, in God's providence, we are in a long season of transition in the life of our church. The most obvious transition, of course, is the fact that we've been looking for a senior pastor for the last two years after our founding and senior pastor went to heaven two years ago. And while that search continues, and there's been some interaction with applicants recently, there haven't been any strong applicants uh, lately, and so we're still waiting on the Lord. Another transition of sorts is that the Lord keeps bringing Uh, people to our church. I mean, earlier this morning, we had a meet and greet with about 10 uh, folks who are new with with our uh, weeks or months to our church. And in fact, 25%, over 25% of our congregation, of our membership, uh, have become members in the last two years. Uh, And that does not include the membership class we're about to welcome uh, in about two weeks, uh, which is, as I understand it, the largest one that we've ever had. So the transition in this respect is that we need to respond to the growth that the Lord has been bringing in various ways. Well, with these transitions, we all need reminders and encouragements regarding the support of a gospel ministry. So this text, as designed by God, is relevant for us today. If you're there in Philippians 4, please follow along as I read verses 10 to 23. The Apostle Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied 
having received from Epaphroditus that which you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As you can see, this is a very personal part of the letter. In fact, it's so personal that the Philippian church might have been embarrassed to learn later on that this letter would be distributed because it shares so uh, much details about their personal relationship with Paul and their generosity with him over the years, something that they probably would have preferred to be kept secret. Nevertheless, here it is, and because it's here in God's inspired, inerrant word, it is therefore profitable for us. Uh, in this passage, we can find five lessons of how God provides for the spread of gospel ministry. Five lessons of how God provides for the spread of gospel ministry. Though Paul speaks very directly about the gift that the Philippians have sent to him, and he speaks very directly about his own personal contentment and his financial situation, we should not forget that the gospel is God's gospel. It is his news to the world. And Paul is Christ's apostle. And the Philippian church is Christ's church. And all the resources in the world belong to the creator of all. And so when Paul commissioned Paul to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, and when the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church in Philippi by saving those to whom God preached, he did not then step back and let the chips fall where they may to see, hey, how is this going to work out? No, he's been intimately, God has, he's been intimately involved in caring for and providing for everyone involved. It is Christ who ensures that all of the material means necessary are provided so that the gospel can go forth. But he doesn't do that by raining money from heaven like manna. God provides for the spread of the gospel through his people. And therefore, it is our privilege, yes, even our joy to be used by God to see his kingdom advance in the world. The five lessons on how God provides for the spread of the gospel are these. First, he stirs the hearts of his people. Second, he grants his workers contentment. Third, he enables givers to be generous. Fourth, he rewards those who give. And fifth, he promises to provide for his people. We'll walk through each of those in turn. Let's begin with the first way that God provides for the spread of the gospel. Namely, he stirs the hearts of his people. Look at verse 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Here, Paul rejoices in the Lord that the Philippians have, as he said, revived their concern for him, which resulted in them sending their financial gift. Uh, the word concern there really is the word to think. And the idea is similar to how we might say, oh, 
thank you so much for thinking of me. That's really what Paul is saying there. The Philippians thought about Paul. They thought about his situation. They thought about his needs. He's been in prison for around three years. And their hearts were stirred to respond and take action. It's no slip of the tongue that Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord. Instead of saying, I rejoice in you. You see, Paul viewed their financial gift through the lens of God's word. And as a result, the spirit produced delight in him. And while there was certainly delight in the action that they had taken, his initial delight is in God's work of stirring their hearts. Even though Paul doesn't say it here, elsewhere he identifies God as the source of their generous hearts. Turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Keep your finger here in Philippians. In fact, you might want to put a bookmark also in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll come back to this a little bit later again. But here in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes to the Corinthian church about another time that the Philippian church, as well as other churches in the region of Macedonia, donated to support the believers in Jerusalem. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just look at verse 1 for the moment. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Note how Paul says there, the grace of God which has been given in the churches. This is his way of saying that God stirred the hearts of his people to provide financially for others. Uh, It is right to call it God's grace because the privilege to support God's work is an undeserved gift. I mean, think about this. Anybody in the world with any means has the opportunity to support all kinds of efforts around the world. Anyone can support organizations that alleviate poverty, help those affected by natural disasters, assist the underprivileged. Anyone can donate to animal shelters or zoos. Anyone can donate to first responder organizations or the many other causes that are out there. There are endless nonprofit organizations working to alleviate suffering and promote good in the world. And those efforts are good. And you are free to direct your resources to them as your heart is stirred. But all of those things pertain to temporal needs and temporary suffering. Because of the sinful nature of man and the curse of sin in the world, all the good that we do to benefit others in those ways lasts only for this life. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means it's temporary. We, the body of Christ, have the unique privilege of supporting efforts that will have everlasting benefits to those who have been saved by Christ and believe the gospel. We've been given the undeserved privilege to contribute to the the outworking of God's redemptive plan of saving souls and exalting Christ and seeing God's glory displayed in the world. And yet, because the the work of God in the world is usually far less tangible than meeting the physical needs of people, God's work often seems less compelling. Missionaries exert extraordinary amount of effort 
over years and often see little fruit. And so their reports often don't garner much excitement. Or in the local church, it can seem like we just we come and go week in and week out and things don't really change. And, and so it's hard to get excited about giving more and more. And so it requires a work of God in the heart to see both the spiritual opportunities and the needs and then desire to participate in what God is doing, especially when your own resources are limited. So here, again in 2 Corinthians 8, we see that the grace of God was given in the churches, and that leads to God's people giving to the work of the Lord. Now, if you come back to Philippians, the Lord stirred the hearts of His people in that church. Their thoughts were directed to Paul and his needs, and so they took action. As you look again at verse 10, you can note that Paul wanted to make sure they didn't misunderstood his, uh, misunderstand his attitude toward them. If he had simply said, you have revived your concern for me and left it at that, they might have assumed that he thought that they weren't concerned before. And so he clarifies, he says, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. It's been over three years since Paul last visited Philippi, and most of those three years he's been in Roman custody, two years in Caesarea and about a year in Rome. For a large portion of that time, there's a lot of uncertainty about what would happen to Paul's case. Would he be convicted of the false charges the Jews were throwing at him and therefore be executed, or would he be found innocent and let go? During those two years in Caesarea, there was a lot of waiting between trials and hearings, and that uncertainty made it difficult for news to travel throughout Asia Minor with any sense of what Paul's actual needs were. In fact, the distance between Philippi and Caesarea was such that it would take months to, for news and updates to get to the Philippians. So there was a lot of uncertainty and distance that took away the opportunity for the Philippian church to send support. They were concerned, but they didn't know how to help. But once he was moved to Rome, that was a lot closer And they were able to then dispatch Epaphroditus and his companions to reach Paul within weeks of hearing of his situation. You know, being stirred by the Lord to give is one of the marks, uh, distinctive marks of New Testament giving as opposed to Old Testament tithing. 2 Corinthians 9-7 says about giving, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Many people use the word tithe to, the, to refer to their giving in the church, but that's not really the best word. Tithe was the Old Testament Mosaic law tax on God's people, the nation of Israel, in order to support the priests and the temple or the tabernacle. The New Testament does not use that word in reference to giving and supporting the local church or gospel ministry. You can be grateful that when you join the church, we don't impose a tax on you to become a member. So among other principles of giving, we would urge you to consider the opportunities in front of you and seek the Lord with how he might stir your heart to contribute to what he is doing. Well, consider then the second way that God provides for the spread of the gospel. Not only does he stir the heart of his people, but he also grants his workers contentment. He grants his workers contentment. Look at verses 11 to 14. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. This section, especially verse 13, has been co-opted by many people to claim for themselves the ability to do anything that they set their mind to, through Christ, of course. But we have to understand this passage in context and recognize that while there indeed may be a principle that we can draw and apply to other kinds of situations, Paul specifically speaks about his ability to fulfill his mission as an apostle regardless of the resources that are at his disposal. The key word in this section is contentment. Paul wants the Philippians to know that his joy over their gift is not out of desperation. In fact, by using the word want, according to the NAS there, the NAS preserves the centuries-old meaning of that term, which means to be in need, right? We're most familiar with the King James Version of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, which means that if the Lord is your shepherd, you will not lack anything, or at least not what's necessary, right? So Paul is saying, not that I speak from want, he's saying, I don't need anything. I'm not lacking in any necessities. He is content with what the Lord has given him because it's always sufficient, even if not more so. Contentment rises out of the perspective that all material goods are finite and this life is temporary. But God is infinite and eternity, excuse me, heaven is forever. So if I have God in my life, I have everything I truly need. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul spoke about professing believers whose eyes were always looking for financial gain. He said, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Food and covering or clothing. That's what Paul identifies as needs. It's because of that disposition that he can say here in Philippians 4 that he has learned how to live humbly or prosperously. He's learned how to function with an empty stomach when food is scarce or when food was plentiful. plentiful. He could continue his mission regardless, again, of what resources he had, whether he had ample resources or limited resources, or in some cases, none at all. Now, the Lord provided for Paul in a variety of ways. At times, he supported, uh, he was supported by the people that he ministered to. Uh, other times, he supported himself by his own work of making tents. Sometimes, he was supported by the income of his ministry partners. While he ministered, they worked and earned a living. And then other times, he was supported by churches in other places wherever he would go. In fact, in Acts 18, for example, Paul went to Corinth and at first, he partnered with Aquila and Priscilla, working with them to make tents during the week. And then on the weekends, or I should say the Sabbath, he would proclaim the gospel in the synagogue. But then the text says, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. 
which means either Silas and Timothy brought money with them to support Paul, or they took over the income-earning efforts so that Paul could focus on ministry. Either way, it freed up Paul to give himself fully to evangelism without having the need to make tents. Clearly, it was not above Paul to support himself, but even that wasn't always possible. In 2 Corinthians 11, when he lists a lot of his suffering, he includes this. He says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If you think about life in the ancient world, travel was slow and communication with other cities and regions was even slower. So as Paul traveled from place to place, it seems there were times when he ran out of resources, out of money, and wouldn't you know it, there weren't any ATMs around. He couldn't make a call or send an email to ask for a wire transfer. And even though he had the skill to make tents, he couldn't carry around all of the equipment and supplies, so he could only do that work when he was in an area where he could partner with an existing business. So Paul was dependent on Christ to strengthen him both to endure the times of hardship as well as to resist the love of money when there was prosperity. Paul had the same disposition as Asaph, who wrote in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Saying that God is his portion is to say that God is all he needs. In fact, he didn't even consider his own health to be a need. With the Lord, he was content and strong no matter what he lacked. According to Galatians 6, envy is a deed of the flesh. And while contentment is not explicitly listed as a fruit of the Spirit, what is contentment if not a mixture of joy, and peace, and self-control. Contentment, then, is a God-given disposition that begins with a biblical view of life and eternity, and it results in having the right desires, values, and priorities. So we learn from this text that the Lord provides for the spread of the gospel by empowering His people to preach and proclaim Christ and serve one another regardless of the amount of resources. Now, Paul ends this section there in verse 10, again saying, excuse me, verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Even though he is content, and even though he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, it was good for them, he says, to share in his affliction by sharing with him the resources that God had provided for them. And so it is today. You know, there's a lot that we can do. In fact, Everything that we do in terms of obedience to Scripture can be done without any money. You don't need a dime to proclaim Christ. You don't need a cent to love one another and serve one another and teach and shepherd and care for one another. At the same time, it's good to take what the Lord has given to us and to use it to support the gospel. With more resources, there are more opportunities and more dedicated time and fewer distractions. 
But whether with much or little, we are strengthened by Christ to be faithful to him. So God provides for the spread of the gospel, not only by stirring the hearts of his people, by granting his workers contentment, but third, he enables givers to be generous. He enables givers to be generous. Look at verses 15 and 16. You yourself know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Here Paul reflects not on the current gift from the Philippian church, but on their past generosity. And he's really picking up on what he said in verse 10 about their thoughtful concern, affirming that the gift that he's just received is nothing new. This This has been a pattern and a practice from the beginning of Paul's ministry among them. Again, if you remember, it's been 10 years since Paul planted this church in Philippi. Acts 16 tells us about that ministry in Philippi. And then Acts 17 tells us that after he left Philippi, he traveled through various cities and ended up in Thessalonica. From Thessalonica, he went to Berea and ultimately to Athens, where he preached the sermon that we studied last week. The distance from Philippi to Thessalonica was 95 miles. Not far by our standards, but a multi-day trip when you're walking or on horseback. Acts 17 tells us that Paul was in Thessalonica for about a month or more, giving the Philippian church ample time to send people to Paul at least twice so that they could provide for his ministry as well as perhaps receive additional teaching for their budding church. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he reminded them of that season of of their life by saying, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And what he doesn't say there, perhaps avoiding shaming them, is that he also was supported by the Philippian church. Well, after Athens, Paul went to Corinth. And he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, When I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, a.k.a. Philippi, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So time and time again, the Philippian church kept sending Paul resources for him to conduct his ministry. Now, as great as that is, what's really remarkable is that they did so even though they themselves were poor. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says about the Philippians and the other churches in that area. Verses 1 through 5, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality or generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. When Paul was traveling back through Macedonia, 
he was collecting funds, not for himself actually, but for the saints in Jerusalem who were going through a famine. And it appears as though he may have tried avoiding asking the Philippian and Macedonian churches to contribute because he recognized that they were in deep poverty themselves. That would explain why he says they had to beg him for the privilege of contributing. And so if it was in their heart to be concerned about the physical needs of the saints in Jerusalem, you can understand why they would be so eager to generously support Paul time and again as he took the gospel further and further into the Gentile world. Note that he says there that they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. When God stirs the hearts of his people, he doesn't stir us to give our leftovers to God. Rather, he stirs our heart to give sacrificially and generously. Look again at the Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8. He says, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. The mindset of sacrificial generous giving is that you are giving not just of your resources, but your whole self to the Lord, entrusting yourself to Him. I go back to Philippians chapter 4 and see how this corresponds to how Paul describes their gift at the end of verse 18. He says, I've received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. They viewed their gift to Paul as an act of worship and sacrifice to God. The Philippian church knew that they weren't just giving to a man so that he could survive. They were giving to God so that God's gospel would have maximum opportunities to spread. Sacrificial giving elevates... God's kingdom purposes above personal wants and entertainment. Generous giving means saying no to some desires so that God's workers can say yes to opportunities. This kind of sacrificial generous giving is empowered by the Holy Spirit who moves in the hearts of his people to give, trusting in him. Well, consider the fourth way God provides for the spread of the gospel. He rewards those who give. He rewards those who give. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. In this short phrase, Paul expresses a truth that many today have taken and twisted into false doctrine. The word profit is simply the word for fruit, and the word account is the word for logos, which or is the word logos, which normally means word, but in this and similar context refers to an account or a record. For example, in the parable of the talents, when the master came back from his trip, it says that he came and settled accounts with his slaves. That use of account refers to financial records, obviously. And other times, the word account refers to historical records. For example, in Romans 14.12, it says, So then, each one of us, will give an account of himself to God. And I believe that's the sense that Paul intends here. So that when he says, I seek for the profit which increases your account, he's emphatically not teaching that prosperity doctrine that if you sow a seed of faith by giving money, God will somehow reward you exponentially with more money than you gave. No doubt you've heard that teaching on TBN or on the radio. 
Listen, God does not promise that the more money we give to the church or televangelists or anyone else, the more money God will give to us. That is a false teaching meant only to line the profits or the pockets of already wealthy people from the scraps of deceived poor people around the world. Whether or not God chooses to bless us financially for our sacrificial giving, giving is a matter of his sovereign purposes and plans. It is not a promise. So what is Paul saying here? How does the financial gift that the Philippian sent produce fruit that increases to their account? Again, God does not promise temporal financial rewards, but he does promise eternal rewards. Again, God does not promise I want you to be clear on this. God does not promise that if you give sacrificially in this life, you will be rewarded richly in this life. But God does promise that when we give of ourselves and when we give back to him what he's already given to us and we serve his promises, he will repay us with glory forever and ever. Consider Matthew 6.21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so if we are giving money to God, expecting God to give us money in return, we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping money. If God is not the ends, but rather the means to an ends, that's idolatry. No, we ought to give to God as an act of worship while knowing that as a secondary matter, Eternal rewards await us where there will be no end to our joy and delight in what God gives to those who love him. Consider 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, which by all accounts includes every single one of us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on this uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Listen, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they will take hold of that which is life indeed. And then Jesus said in Luke 14, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they also may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Time and again, Scripture emphasizes that the ways in which we serve God in this life, whether it's serving with our hands or giving of our time or our resources, God will lavishly repay in eternity. And so here in Philippians 4.17, Paul declares that he is 
far more interested in the eternal rewards for the Philippians than he is in his own temporary provision. He rejoices that their gift, at their gift, because of what it means for their eternal joy, more than he rejoices because of his temporary comfort. Beloved, this should be our perspective as well. As with so many aspects of the Christian life, we must have an eternal perspective. As long as this life may feel, and it probably feels longer for those who are younger than those who are older, eternity really is forever. And while the scripture doesn't say precisely what the exchange rate is between earthly works and service and heavenly rewards, we do know this. We serve a generous God. He is a God who abounds in love and kindness and grace. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so if there's one thing that we can guarantee is that you will not be disappointed if you store up treasures in heaven. You will be overwhelmed beyond comprehension at how God lavishes his abundance toward us. So God provides for the spread of the gospel by promising eternal rewards for all that we do to support the gospel. Fifth, consider the final way God provides for the spread of the gospel. Number five, he provides for all his people. He provides for all his people. Look at verses 18 and 19. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In the last point, we saw that God promises eternal rewards. Here, we see that God provides for our temporal needs. Paul expresses both the reality that God provided abundantly for him through their gift, and he declares the promise that God will provide for them all of their needs as well. But take a look at verse 18, and please notice that Paul does not say God will supply all of your wants or desires. Do you see that? God promises to supply what you need, not what you desire. Well, doesn't Psalm 37.4 say that if I delight myself in the Lord, He will give me all of the desires of my heart? Well, absolutely, it does say that, and that's true. But here's what that means. The more that you love God, the more that you will love the things that God loves, and you will desire the things that God desires. Consequently, your former desires for the things of this world will fade. You will come to align your view of needs and wants very differently than how they are today. It is amazing, isn't it, how in our prosperous society, we've totally lost sight of the distinction between needs and wants. Many of you today under 18 believe that it is absolutely necessary that you have a cell phone. We may believe that we need a car. 
We might think that we need constant access to the internet. There are all kinds of things that we convince ourselves that we need, and then we craft our lifestyle and expectations based on those perceived needs. And then when we, when we can't get what we need or we lose what we think we need, we get angry or we get depressed. We complain in our hearts to God and to others about how much we deserve more than what we have. You know, Ten years ago, I was in Kenya and teaching a, a group of 80 Pentecostal pastors for three days, half of whom were women pastors. How that came to be is a story for another time. But <laughs> during one of the Q&A sessions, the oldest person in the room raised her hand. And she was, uh, as they told me later, about 60-some years old. But the long-term suffering in her, in her life made her body look like she was over 100 she asked me a question along the lines of, why doesn't God always answer my prayer for food? You see, this woman lived in the bush of Kenya where food was scarce. And so hunger, not satisfaction, was her daily experience. I guarantee that her definition of needs versus wants is very different than all of ours. Well, I said more than this to that question, but here's the gist. God provides for his children precisely what they need to fulfill his purposes in their life. Until such a time as it is his will for their life to end. Let me say that again. God provides for his children precisely what they need to fulfill his purposes for their life until such a time as he by his will, determines that it is their time for their life to end. Jesus said on, in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. As the Lord provided daily for the needs of his people Israel as they left Egypt and wandered around the desert for 40 years, he provides for us daily as well. Now I need to say that knowing that God will provide for our needs empowers us to give generously, but we should not give recklessly. Meaning we shouldn't give money to the church or others that is needed to pay obligations like housing or bills. Thinking, well, it'll all work out. God will provide for my needs if I just give all my money away, even though I have these obligations. At the same time, sometimes we obligate ourselves to things that truly aren't needs. Years ago, when we were in California, there was a man asking the church for money and after meeting with him, one of the pastors uh, walked out, walked him out to his car just as they were talking and came to his car. And the pastor realized, oh, you have like a brand new car <laughs> and learned that he had a $400 a month car payment. Well, you can probably guess the counsel he was given to solve his financial troubles. In a more precious case, one of our members once expressed to me her sorrow that she couldn't give as much to the church as she wanted to because she was 
out of work and she could only pull so much from her savings to give to the church regularly. As much as I rejoiced at her heart to give, I told this dear sister, this is not the time for you to be giving to the church. Her heart was in the right place, but the Lord did not expect her to give out of her poverty things that she needed to fulfill her obligations. So there is a balance between generosity and recklessness, but I could be wrong. My guess is most of us struggle more to be generous than we struggle with reckless giving. Whatever the case, we need to give to the Lord to support the spread of the gospel, and we can be confident that God will indeed supply our needs. And even beyond that, most of the time, right, as 1 Corinthians 6 said again, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so it's because of the abundance that he's given to us that we have the joy and the privilege to give back to him to see the gospel go forth and his people built up. Well, these five lessons that God, of how God provides for the spread of the gospel are as applicable to us as they were to the Philippians and to Paul. God stirs the hearts of his people He gives his workers contentment. He grants givers the ability to be generous. He rewards those who give and he provides for all his people. You know, as as I stand here, I am beyond thankful for how the Lord has stirred the hearts of this people, not just at this time, but over the last 26 years to give to the work of the Lord. There are many of you who have been extraordinarily generous. You've been generous with your finances. You've been generous with your time. You've been generous with your energy and your skills and your knowledge and your wisdom. Hope Bible Church exists as a testimony in part to God's work in your life to give to the work of the Lord. And now as we look around Hope Bible Church and we see how God is bearing fruit all over the place, From the ministry level, such as Hope Academy or the Hope Biblical Counseling Center or the many other ministries of the church, all the way down to the individual heart level where God is saving and sanctifying his people. We'll celebrate that next week when we have baptisms. There are significant opportunities before us to press forward and increase the work that we are doing for Christ's sake. And so in the coming weeks, we'll be putting out information about some of those opportunities, but we would encourage you to pray and see how the Lord might stir your own heart as to how you can give to the work of the Lord here at Hope Bible Church. Now, your giving is between you and the Lord. We trust that he will work in all of us to accomplish his purposes for our church, and we will be content with that. Well, beloved, there is joy in supporting gospel ministry. There's joy on the part of gospel workers who get to witness God's work in the hearts of those who give for eternal purposes. And there's joy on the part of givers who delight in participating in the ministry with time and energy and the resources that God has given to them. And the collective joy of gospel workers and gospel givers brings glory to God. Look at verse 20. He says, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the giver of life and breath in all things, as we saw last week, so He alone deserves the glory. We cannot give 
anything except that which God has already given to us. We can't work except with the strength that God provides. And we certainly can't produce the fruit in the lives of those to whom we minister except that the Holy Spirit works in their hearts. And so we we give and we work and it's our joy to give God the glory for how he uses our efforts. Well, Paul started this letter in chapter 1, verse 1, saying, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And then he ends the letter by greeting all of the saints there in Philippi from all of the saints in Rome. Look at 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. As we've seen, saints are not super Christians. Those who've reached some high level of spirituality. Every person who has been washed by the blood of Christ and wears the righteous robes of Christ by virtue of God's declaration of righteousness and holiness is a saint. A holy one. From the youngest believer to the oldest, we are all saints. And that's important to remember if you think about everything that Paul has written in this letter. Though the letter is loving and gentle from start to finish, Paul addresses sin and problems in the church. He even named two women earlier in this chapter. But no matter how much a person struggles with sin or is involved in conflict, we are all saints before God, and we should view and treat one another as fellow saints in Christ. Well, verse 23 then ends with a common benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is a common ending, but it's not meaningless. This is the benediction of extending grace, the grace of Christ to the church. We've seen that they have been facing trouble, pressure from the world. They've experienced conflict within the church. They've been called to die to themselves and be conformed to the death of Christ so that they might live for Christ. They need God's grace, just as we do. And what the Lord said to Paul, he says to all, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So as we complete the study of this letter, I remind you of its theme. Rejoice! To live is Christ, and to die is gain. God's grace enables us to rejoice, to view the circumstances of life through the lens of God's Word, such that the Spirit produces in us delight and strength. God's grace empowers us to live for Christ, dying to ourselves and reflecting His character for all to see. And God's grace reminds us that to die is gain. The sufferings of this present life are not worth to be compared, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we come to this end, 
we affirm, as we've just said, that we need your grace. You have been extraordinarily generous toward us. You've given us that greatest gift beyond comprehension, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you gave for the salvation of our souls. And then in addition to him, you've given us all things. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians. You've seated us with Christ. You've prepared good works for us to do. You've given us your spirit. You've placed us in the body of Christ. You've given us your word. And then on top of those things, for all of us in this room, you've given us not just one pair of clothing, but many sets of clothes. You've given us not just one meal a day, but multiple meals a day. You've given us education. You've given us jobs. You've given us ministry. You've given us family and relationships. We could go on and on just listing out the things you've given us. And ultimately, we would have to say, you've just given us everything. There's nothing that we have except that you've given it to us. And so we express our thanks to you who are the generous God. You are the, the father of lights from whom all good things come. Lord, work in each one of our hearts according to your will to stir us as to how we can give back to you from what you've given to us, how we can contribute to the spread of the gospel and the work of your kingdom here and around the world. May our giving individually and collectively be a reflection of how you have been generous to us. And then as we reflect on the rest of this letter, the significant life-changing truths, as we close this chapter, may it not make us blind to the truths that are found in the rest of the letter. May we live each moment and each day rejoicing, living for Christ, celebrating that to die is gain, so that Christ would be glorified in all things. We pray. Amen.